Locked on NBA Thursday edition. I'm David Locke, joined by Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. Portland and Denver will go back to Portland tied at one. So three of the four series are tied at one, and we're getting the NBA playoffs as we wanted it. One of them is 2-0, which means there's a 90-plus percent chance that the Warriors have won that series and probably won the title. We'll talk about that coming up, but let's get to the game last night. Portland beats Denver 97-90. to Okay, is it possible that I can finish this game, though, feeling like very energized about the spirit of the Denver Nuggets as much as I am impressed by what Terry Stotts continually is pulling off of the Blazers, Ben? Yeah, this is a weird game. It's either like the truism came completely true or was proven completely false. Like the truism for the Nuggets is, look, if Jamal Murray doesn't shoot well, doesn't score, uh, they're probably cooked. If he does, they're going to win. That's exactly what happened from the Denver side. But the truism for the Blazers is if Lillard, if they're going to win in the playoffs without Yusuf Nurkic, Lillard has to go off and, and play huge. And actually he didn't. And they were still able to win relatively comfortably, even though that's one of the worst offensive games he's probably played in months. So it was a weird game to analyze. But what makes you say that? Well, I thought this, this, the spirit of the Nuggets, the incredible offensive rebounding, the, the signature of this Nuggets team all season long has been their ability to win close games, come from behind. And if I had a question about them, it was whether or not that was just kind of a weird regular season phenomenon, whether they just kind of gotten lucky. Um, they, if you look at their kind of late game numbers, I think they were like something crazy, like 30 and 12 and their defense in the final five minutes of a close game is unusually good. Um, and the shooting is unusually bad, but I think I actually saw it tonight again, which I've seen throughout the year, just this incredible spirit from them late in games in how they approach it. And, you know, they didn't win tonight, but that battle they put in late, their defensive rating, by the way, was a 95.3 in close games this year. They were 31-15 and 15 in those games, most wins of anyone in the league. And I just thought you saw why. And then I look at the fact that they were 6 of 29 from 3, and I just kind of and shot 35%, and it says to me, you know what, that, sp- that spirit could carry them to win this series. Yeah, there's no question. If you're Michael Malone, your message after that game is, guys, we're not going to shoot six for 29 on threes again, and we're still in a game, so we belong in this series. You know, Portland might have been coming in on this huge high with the, you know, all the hype around the Damian Lillard shot, uh, but, you know, we belong in this series. I think that would be Denver's, uh, you know, general message. I've been really impressed continually uh, by Jokic. Again, tonight it wasn't his best scoring night, and I thought Enos Kanter, surprisingly, out of nowhere, uh, did have something to do with that. But he continues to be a very consistent competitor, and he's been ready for primetime this whole playoffs. Uh, you could say that throughout that San Antonio series, he was having a huge impact. You know, I know he got tired uh, You know, in the fourth quarter that Game 7 was kind of gassed and you know, sputtering to the finish line, but he still got there. And I think that uh, you know, the belief they have in their star player, it might not be as obvious or uh, as kind of in-your-face as like Portland's leadership style, but I actually give Jokic a lot of the credit for what you're describing because – uh, I think you know there's a lot of role players in Denver's rotation who could check out uh, if the going gets tough in certain playoff games. But I think they believe in Jokic. He winds up carrying them through, and they're able to kind of keep that spirit, keep that camaraderie that you're talking about. And it's been obvious all year if you've watched Denver, their bench is always into it. It's that, those kind of symbolic things. There was a good article. I think it was written in The Athletic. I apologize. I think it might have been Nick. I'm not sure who wrote it. About kind of um, Jokic's 
personality, and he's just this kind of goofball, and he's got a looseness to him, but it, it's matched with a focus, and it makes him enjoyable and fun to be with, and I think you know that's probably what's carrying over you're seeing there. I, um, so I, if I'm Denver, I don't lead, you know, they just lost at home, and um, they didn't lose home court advance because the game seven is still in Denver. I will not fall under that trap. Um, but in a sense, you know, it should be the big downer, but I'm not sure that they leave feeling that way. Yeah, I think they're going to be all right. I mean, they didn't seem like, you know, super, you know, down in the dumps in their post-game press conferences. In addition to what you mentioned about Jokic's personality, I think the other big thing is the total lack of an ego, right? I mean, this guy is like incredibly self-deprecating. He doesn't pump himself up. He's not trying to hype himself be out there in commercials or everything else. And I think that winds up having a magnetic quality. And he's also, you know, finding guys consistently, which is some of the most beautiful passes ever. And that was actually, you know, one thing that I wondered uh, when we're looking at how does his game translate to the postseason, right? Because, of course, there was going to be the questions about his defense. But I had the question of, like, okay, uh, you know, a lot of times perimeter defensive players can lock in on uh, their opposing guys, right? So we've seen shooters like a J.J. Reddick get taken out of a series. And so I kind of wondered, like, is their offense still going to work if they're playing against defenses that are totally locked in, paying attention, or are they going to be, you know, over-reliant on Jokic kind of picking apart guys who maybe aren't playing at full focus and full effort during the regular season, is some of his, uh, you know, the offense that he's creating by his passing going to dry up in the playoffs? And I think in general, that's not what we've seen. I mean, they've, they've been able to consistently kind of keep the offense humming. Uh, he's actually had to do a little bit more scoring himself throughout this postseason, uh, which has been impressive to see in certain games where he's taking over and looking more like a traditional number one scorer. But I think the balance has been there. Uh, and again, I think they're going back to Portland, uh, you know, for games three. Uh, you know, still feeling good about where they sit and still feel like this is going to be a very long series and kind of a dogfight either way. So amazingly impressed with what Terry Stotts has done with this team because when you look at the skill set of of his team, Mo Harkless is maybe the worst shooting three in the NBA. He actually is. <laughs> uh, Aminu is, by a statistical measure, the worst shooting four in the league. Ennis Canner's Ennis Canner. And he's got these two incredible guards. But the other part about Aminu and Harkless, and I'm not just trying to kill them because they do a lot of good they do a lot of things for them. This is kind of my point of what Terry to about what neither of them really can dribble or pass. So neither of them can dribble or pass. Neither of them are very good shooters. And yet somehow Terry Stotts is using all these guys in a manner in which they are able to be successful. I think it's just incredible. Yeah, and don't forget, I mean, Evan Turner has just disappeared. I mean, missing an action off the face of the earth during these postseasons, too. And that was another guy who's supposed to give them a little something from that perimeter and maybe a little bench scoring and playmaking. It really hasn't been there. Uh, he's struggled to get production from his backup centers as well. I mean, there's that trickle-down effect from Nurkic getting injured. You know, so Canner's playing well. But then what about the guys behind Canner? And there's been a lot of empty minutes from those guys during the playoffs. But he continues to kind of find a way to do it. Uh, it definitely helps to have two big-time explosive playmakers with Lillard and McCollum kind of you know, carrying the day and, and setting up some of those complementary guys for their spot-up shots. I actually thought Aminu and Harkless were huge X-factors in that first-round series uh, against Oklahoma City. I mean, they more than pulled their weight offensively. Uh, but, you know, you were mentioning being impressed by Terry Stotts. You know, one takeaway I've kind of had from this postseason is, man, did he not work? Uh, Billy Donovan. I mean, if you go down their checklist of like kind of the strategic goals that they would want to have in that series, uh, you know, for Stotts, it's make sure Lillard can, you know, lead the offense, make sure Canner can stay on the court and play big minutes, 
Make sure you're, you're forcing Russell Westbrook to beat you with his jump shot. Pay as much defensive attention as possible to Paul George. I go right down that list, and like Terry Stotts checked every single one of those things. If you flip it around and you look at Billy Donovan, obviously you want to control Damian Lillard. You want to force Canner off the court by picking on him defensively. You want to force uh, Portland's complimentary shooters to beat you because, as you mentioned, they're not very potent. You go down that list of things, and Billy Donovan didn't do any of those things. And so uh, I saw Sam Presti's comments this week saying they're going to stick with Billy, and I know they picked up you know, his option back in December for next season. So that wasn't a huge surprise. But uh, I think if I'm a Thunder fan, I'm watching this series, uh, you know, watching both Terry Stotts and Michael Malone and the spirit and kind of the intelligence these teams are playing with, and I'm being pretty envious. I didn't read Sam Presti's comments the same way you did. Ooh. I read Sam Presti's comments that we expect Billy to be back. We're looking forward to meeting with him, and we're – then so those were these comments and i read that as that we're not offering him an extension he'll be going into the final year of his deal and we'll see if he wants to do that leaving the door open well that's interesting too i mean if you're billy uh and there bill- are worse things to do than to, to cash those millions of dollars of paycheck and, and try to run it back with two of uh, you know whatever the top 20 guys in the league um or you go t- or or you go take the university of arizona job <laughs> we got the feds breathing down your neck uh, in the aftermath of, of the Sean Miller era. That's right. Uh, yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, if you were him, would you walk? I don't know if I'd want to be. I don't know if I'd be willing to go into my last year of a contract there without a without an extension. Yeah, it's it's tough because you know it's the classic thing like with the Lakers. You know, how many times do we hear from the Lakers? Well, you know, we were the fourth seed before the LeBron injury, and you can hear the same thing from Oklahoma City, right? It's like, well, you know, by January one or whatever date it was, look where the record was. You know, we were right there from contention. But if you're being a little bit more uh, rational and reasonable and balanced about it, you say, look, all those games after those dates really matter, and they ended on uh, in an awful low kind of note and a real thud in the postseason. And you look around at how are they going to be able to manage this roster to really take a step forward and to give Billy Donovan more to work with. Uh, Their options are very, very limited and will probably involve trading away one of their core guys, which I know that Sam Presti is not going to be super excited to do. So uh, that's interesting. I guess I hadn't really dug into that, uh, that answer as deeply as you did. I guess we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, But for Billy Donovan, it, it is kind of a thankless task because uh, he's not exactly being set up for success given the, the parts that he has to work with outside the main two guys. And frankly, one of those main two guys, Russell Westbrook, is a very difficult to, uh, player to win with uh, during the Western Conference playoffs. Uh, I, By the way, if you look, uh, only because I live the opposite of it, Oklahoma City just had a soft schedule to start and a hard schedule to finish. So they were never as good. They were never anywhere near as good as their records seemed to make them. And they are just well, who they were by the end of the, the season. Lakers too, right? <laughs> right. I mean, the Jazz were the opposite. The Jazz weren't as bad as they were early, and they weren't as good as they were late. They actually were exactly who they were, and they're not, which is not as good as Houston. Um, and so, I think that when you, you know, when you see some of these, that that storyline out of Oklahoma City is just it's inaccurate, frankly. Uh, one more thought on Terry Stotts. In just a second, we continue uh, here on Locked On NBA. Uh, today's show is brought to you in part by our friends over at ZipRecruiter. When the Locked On Podcast Network is uh, adding and growing and continuing to look to add fabulous people, how do we do it? We often do it with ZipRecruiter. Why? Because their technology is simply 
quicker and better than anyone else out there. What ZipRecruiter is able to do is send your job to over a 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience. Invite them to apply for your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlights the top candidates, and you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So here's what we're going to do for you, ZipRecruiter, for free. That's right, at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. ZipRecruiter.com slash locked on. Has a general manager ever hosted a uh, press conference at the begin- in the middle of a series to thank their head coach? Because I was thinking that Neil O'Shea <laughs> should do that. Uh, why is that? I don't know. Like Alan Crabb, Evan Turner. I give him credit for Rodney Hood and Ennis Cantor, but I'm just playing a little bit. I do feel as though there have been a lot of mis- – you know, I just I th- – I think that these jobs are harder than we make them being a GM, and I think we anoint people as geniuses and failures – you know, maybe Denver is the greatest example. Like Denver has built not only their own franchise, but the Utah Jazz, right? Because Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are both Nuggets <laughs> picks. And like, okay, but Mike Conley's done, or Tim Conley, excuse me, has done 12 other things that are brilliant. Neil O'Shea does deserve some credit for Ennis Cantor and Rodney Hood pickups during the trade deadline, which, or the waiver wire, which were obviously impressive. But he also signed Alan Crabb to huge contract, Evan Turner, and Terry Stotts keeps seemingly finding ways to make these players useful or survive those mistakes, and I think he des- I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for where Portland is right now. No, oh, he's been in a tough spot too. I mean, he's been on the hot seat, you know, multiple times. And some of the first round exits, everybody likes to point and, and say, "Oh, well, Damian, that was a big failure for him against the Pelicans." Well, I mean, Terry Stotts was catching uh, a lot of heat for that as well. Uh, you throw on top of it the ownership questions, right? I mean, Paul Allen's death definitely cast a shadow over the whole season. There's really been hardly anything public said by Jody Allen, you know, his sister who's kind of stepped into that role. You know, we've seen what kind of a, you know, destabilizing effect that kind of an ownership change can have. I mean, look no further than New Orleans Pelicans. I mean, what a miserable job it must have been to be Alvin Gentry this year, managing the Anthony Davis fiasco, trying to, you know, see how the, you know, Dell Demps would be fired at the trade deadline, all the other drama that was going, uh, you know, for that team on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it must have been horrible. And, and for Terry Stotts, I mean, you have this ownership change. You've got uh, a GM who's who's definitely made some mistakes and, and not done you any favors in terms of helping your bench. Uh, the one thing he's always had is those reliable star players he can turn to. And he's done an incredible job of, of having a good relationship with them, putting them in positions where they can succeed, uh, and then letting you know the rest take care of itself. And I think that's what he's he's done. And to me, uh, you know, there's already been some talk about him getting a contract extension here over these last couple of weeks, and, and that makes a lot of sense to me. It just seems like a really nice fit between star player, coach, uh, franchise, and market. It just kind of all adds up. All right, let's go to the Warriors-Rockets for a second. Has there, is there any team in the history of the NBA, other than maybe the Cleveland Cavaliers three years ago, who could beat the Golden State Warriors four out of five? Uh, I mean, I, I give credit to the Warriors for beating themselves in that series, too, by the way. I mean, it was it was equal parts Draymond mistake, LeBron brilliance, a Kyrie shot, and some Kiki Vandeweghe inter, uh, interference. They're all coming together. I don't see all of those factors aligning here uh, in this situation. I don't want to say Houston's toast. I think they're going to come out 
you know, super hard in game three being back home. I mean, that's usually the like kind of your season's on the line, like try to prolong your existence type of game. But, uh, you know, once all the, you know, ugliness about the officiating, you know, once that cloud lifted, it was just pretty clear that uh, Golden State's top five is better than Houston's top five, period, full stop. I mean, they played the death lineup or the Hamptons five, whatever you want to call them. They played them 24 minutes together. Uh, they were easily, uh, you know, in the in the positive. I think plus 12 in game two. Kevin Durant was doing his thing, and I thought they all had incredible defensive effort from spots one through five. I mean, Steph Curry, you can nitpick the foul trouble and they're reaching in, but every single one of those guys turned an impressive defensive effort. They're doing a great job limiting Harden's effectiveness, making his life, uh, you know, a little bit miserable. Uh, and they're basically getting it done offensively despite some kind of hit or miss contributions from Steph at various points during this postseason. So, uh, yeah, I think that their talent advantage is absolutely showing through. I still think they have another gear or two that they can get to, uh, which is basically dependent on Steph staying on the court, staying out of foul trouble, and really getting into more of a groove than he's been able to show so far during this postseason. But I've been incredibly impressed by the job you know Kevin Durant has done. I think he's the leading scorer in the playoffs. Uh, he's just been consistent night in, night out, hitting big shots down the stretch. They're sticking to good shot selection, which was a real problem for him. You know, in kind of some hero ball moments back during those Oklahoma City days, he seems like he's worked through those issues and gotten himself to a better, more efficient, more ruthless place. And uh, I would not want to be Mike D'Antoni because I don't really think he's got anything close to a good answer for Kevin Durant on that roster. And as long as Katie continues to do his thing, I think this is going to be, uh, you know, relatively quick series for Golden State. The killer to me was that the Warriors have the ball popping again like it was. I mean, when they came out of training camp, what was it now, three, four years ago, the, when it first kind of the murmur started around the league of like, oh, my gosh, Steve Kerr's got something going here. Before Kevin Durant got there and the ball just popped, it just it just was they were so quick with it, it went everywhere. Um and then, and that led to the Draymond lobs, and you know Draymond's got it in the middle of the paint now, and you're stretched out because you've got to follow Curry and Thompson and Agudala or Looney or somebody's just right by the rim, and you actually can't come out to him. You should be just staying back and make Draymond shoot the floater, but nobody can actually do that. So he ends up throwing the lob. Like when they have that going, and then simultaneously you have those two possessions from Durant to close the ball game the other night. There were just those isos at the top where nobody can guard him. That comes combination last night looked as or two nights ago looked as 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 mammothly awesome as I think when they have been at their peak can I add one more thing the turnovers too, the ball control I think that they only had 12 turnovers in game two I think they were plus five on the turnover battle Houston had 17 and so they're getting so many more possessions on top of that too so it's the ball movement but still taking care of the basketball while also having efficient scores who can finish plays I mean you throw all those things together uh, they've been rebounding the ball in pretty impressive fashion. They've been kind of forcing Clint Capella, uh, you know, off the off the court at times because of matchup issues. I mean, it really was all coming together there for them in game one and two. And their focus level was just so much better than it was at times during that Clippers series. I mean, there was moments against L.A. where they were completely locked in, and there was moments where they looked three-quarters of the way checked out. And uh, they really smoothed that out here in the second round, they're treating it almost like the finals, frankly. I mean, when they, as soon as I saw they were coming out and starting Iguodala, I was like, okay, uh, this team's not messing around. They mean business. They want to take care of this rivalry as quickly as possible. I, I don't think the Rockets can beat the Warriors four out of five. Do you think they can make it a series? Uh, certainly possible. I mean, I, I could see this going uh, six. I'm not sure it gets to seven, though. I mean, I think Golden State's clicking. Uh, and like I said, the sleeping giant is Steph. You know, he's had some moments. 
Uh, he had a couple games there where he was shooting the ball well. I know he dislocated that finger, and that's kind of an X factor here in terms of you know what does his health and scoring look like. Uh, I give Houston some credit for how well they've defended him, but uh, to me, it's like he's been kind of uh, simmering now for like you know a week. I think his last really truly incredible breakthrough game was Game One of the playoffs against LA. And when he was playing like that in that first game, it was like, oh my goodness, everybody, you know, <laughs> head for the hills. I mean, th- these guys are ready to go, and I think we're going to see more of that Steph Curry here as this series unfolds. The personalities of all these guys are awfully interesting. Steph Curry, Dame Lillard, Giannis, um, all these stars, Joel and all his, his personality stuff, I'm not sure I'm as sold on as the guys I just mentioned. We'll touch on that. You did an interesting piece on the Washington Post this week on Dame Lillard. We'll continue with Ben Golliver. We'll check in on the two Eastern Conference Series and, and just touch on, on these people um, that are leading the way in this, in this league right now that all seem to be pretty incredible. That's when we continue here on Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Remember, your team every day, your favorite team in the NBA has its daily podcast, getting you ready for the draft, reviewing the season, all sorts of fun things uh, going on around the Lockdown Podcast Network. Just, you, you did that piece on Dame, and the and these guys are really artists. I mean, I, I'm fortunate enough to be embedded and see how much work goes in. You did a piece on kind of Dame's work, Steph's work. Clay, you know, is this quiet guy, and the level that he puts into it, it's the individuals across this league universally are incredible people first, and then second, the the effort and time they're putting in Ben just blows me away. Oh, no question about it. I did a story earlier this year comparing LeBron and Michael Jordan as scorers, and I was talking to guys who had guarded both of them, and there were some guys who were like, look, we'd be drinking beers in the locker room. Like, I had teammates who'd smoke cigarettes at halftime, like, you know, back in Michael Jordan's age, and that it, we're so far removed from that, it can't be uh, stated enough. I mean, the, the best guys right now, the guys who are trying to compete and take LeBron's spot as the best player in the world, are all just absolute workaholic freaks. They're all spending their summers, you know, developing their skills, improving their weaknesses, being very cold and calculating in terms of how they fill in those gaps. And it's turned into almost like, you know, Game of Thrones, like who can, who can claim this spot? The thing that was really interesting to me about the Damian Lord story that I did, though, was how... You know, the Blazers' strength coach, Ben Kenyon, really stressed to me the importance of the emotional intelligence aspect, the composure aspect. And I think we've seen that come through at various points during this postseason, whether it was Chris Paul losing his cool late against Golden State, whether it was Steph Curry, you know, keeping his composure at the end of game one, battling through foul trouble to hit that big three-pointer over Nene, uh, whether it was Damian Lillard obviously staying composed through the trash talk, uh, you know, to, to hit the three-pointer to, to send the Oklahoma City Thunder home, whether it was the Spurs completely losing their composure with LaMarcus Aldridge at the end of Game 7 against Denver, not real, realizing the time score situation, just kind of botching that whole uh, setup. You could even say the composure of a guy like Giannis who goes through a very, very confounding Game 1 against Boston where their defensive scheme against him looks incredible. I mean, after that game, I wrote that Boston should pr- pretty much call it the Giannis rules, just like the Jordan rules because they had done such a good job of making him think, making him work, and just kind of making his life miserable. And for him to turn around in game two and kind of lead Milwaukee to a really cushy kind of you know blowout, uh, breakaway win uh, was extraordinarily impressive to me. It was a real mental test, and he came through it. So that's just one factor I've been looking at in these playoffs. I mean, obviously, th- you know, thinking the game, you know, playing intelligently is always going to be uh, a real you know difference maker uh, in the postseason. But when I look at a lot of these series, whether it's Toronto, Philadelphia, uh, Boston, Milwaukee, 
uh, you know, even Denver, Portland, like there's not a lot different between the talent on those rosters. And that's why I think the composure factor, the emotional intelligence that some of these superstars are really focusing on, uh, it's a huge difference maker. And, you know, like Damian, for example, he's doing yoga, he's doing deep breathing exercises. You know, he's cha- he's uh, you know challenging himself in ways that maybe he didn't earlier in his career. Just to be sure that when the big pressure moment comes, he's ready to go. He's level-headed, and he can perform how he wants to perform. I find Dame just incredibly likable. You know, we all have. Uh, you work for a team, you get to know guys like I do, but you always have your favorite guys. You know, Manu, uh, Manu playing with his kids before games in San Antonio was always a one of my favorites, you know, that part of his pregame routine was playing with those kids. Um, Dame is high on my list right now. From from all the things you just talked about to the way he plays to his Special Olympics work, he's really he's really the best the league has to offer. You know what's great is that you're in you're in good company because Royce Young, you know the the Oklahoma City writer, I think he feels the same way. You know, he was doing that Blazers Thunder series, and I could just sense the jealousy from his tweets and his text messages about. Uh, you know, the kind of impact that, you know, Damian Lillard's had on that culture in Portland and, and the locker room and everything else. All right. Uh, I thought game two of Boston-Milwaukee was really interesting because I wondered whether Giannis could adapt. Right. It was a huge test. That's what I mean. It was a mental test. It was a, a, a schematic test. I mean, I, we should be honest. So he got a lot of help from the refs, didn't he? I mean, I, think, I thought he was getting a lot of calls in that game, a real friendly whistle. Well, he took like 117 free throws, right? <laughs> yeah, well, don't quote me on that number, but it sounds about right. I mean, well, you know uh, you take a, to... you know you take a lot of free throws when James Harden is jealous of it, <laughs> right? Well, he got some help from his shooters too, which definitely opened things up. But uh, to me, the biggest difference was the speed of his decisions and the quality of his decisions. Uh, Boston had done such a good job in Game One of disguising the help so that Giannis couldn't exactly tell what where it was coming from. They also did a good job of kind of delaying and timing it. So when he would gather the ball for a move in the paint or he would uh, you know, pick up his dribble at the post, that's when the help comes and now he's kind of stuck and uh, he's dealing with lots of active hands and some length and, uh, and looking a little bit flustered and, and frustrated. I thought in game two, quicker decisions, you know, collapsing the defense, you know, kicking the ball out uh, and having that payoff with open three-pointers and, and three-pointers they wound up making, uh, you know, that was one of the biggest differences in that game. And then kind of flip side, you know, Milwaukee really benefited from just a total no-show from Kyrie Irving. You know, I saw some people call now one of the worst games they've seen him play. In terms of total impact, I think he had no free throws. It was one of his worst shooting performances of his postseason career. I think it was the second fewest points he'd ever scored in a playoff game. Uh, and the, the other game, the only one that was lower, uh, he left pretty early after injury. So uh, it was a real anomaly from him. And, and I guess that's the guy I've got circled for game three. How does Kyrie bounce back? Because we saw Giannis bounce back in game two, and now it's his turn. Boston's shooting in game one was one of the best shooting nights. Not, I mean, it, it was up there in the top 50 shooting nights of any team in the NBA this year, I think. I mean, it was really – when you look at what they're – I'm a big believer in the second spectrum stat, QSQ, which is what an average team would have shot that night. Uh, compared to what an av- what the team actually did, and um, of all games all year long, they were it was the seventy eighth best shooting night of the year by any single team. That there's been a lot. There's fourteen hundred games, right? The like that's they had one of the most 
kind of out of the normal shooting games in night one. And I, I think the margin of night one can really skew your point of view, but Boston's not going to be able to do that again. Cause on that same night, Milwaukee had one of the worst shooting nights of any team has out all year. That was an outlier game that I don't think you can use as a vantage point to understand what's going to happen in the rest of this series. Well, I think it's a great point, and it underscores the idea of, of Milwaukee's mental toughness because that's the kind of game where you get hit with one of those outliers. You're a young team. You just got your first series victory for most of these guys uh, in their core, You know, Giannis especially. That could be the one where you look in the mirror and you're like, wait a minute, are we actually a 60-win team, or did we just beat up on the Detroit Pistons team that didn't really belong in the playoffs? Like, it, it would make you kind of question yourself almost existentially, right? And I think that they were able to, uh, you know, pull through those kinds of uh, internal mental questions and really look, you know, solid and strong in game two. You know, your point on Boston's offense, man, if they're getting a shooting from every spot like they did in game one, where like even Horford is just draining threes, their offense looks really, really good. But, you know, to me, that hasn't been the case for them all season. Uh, I haven't been the, the world's biggest fan of their attack. And uh, it was one of those wow moments, uh, you know, and, and we'll see, you know, how often during this series they can kind of get close to that type of peak. But uh, if he's shooting the ball well from outside, it makes life really miserable for Brooke Lopez. And it forces, uh, you know, Coach Mike Boonholzer to really think about his lineups and, and, and which direction he wants to go. And speaking of that, I like the idea of the Miritich adjustment. You know, I thought that other backcourt spot, in game one, whether it was Sterling Brown or Pat Connaughton, it was just empty minutes that he absolutely had to fill. And they haven't had Malcolm Brogdon because of injury. So I thought, you know, kind of adjusting the lineups, adjusting the rotations to bring Miritich in a little bit more, create a little bit more spacing, and then just, you know, dump that weakest link was a nice move by Coach Bud. And it was good to see him just do it immediately and not wait for it because I think a lot of his skeptics as a coach would say, oh, this guy, he never wants to adjust anything. He just sticks to the script. And I think in game two, he actually did make a pretty important adjustment. Both good points in the three-point shooting. They allow the most above-the-break threes of any team in the NBA by design. And there's been a question all year inside the circles of the NBA whether that will work uh, when you hit playoff time. What's your thoughts on where Philadelphia-Toronto stand and what we're going to see tomorrow? Or tonight, excuse me. I mean, yeah, right. I think Toronto is definitely the better team. And that game two performance was just really perplexing, right? Like, what happened? I mean, you get this, uh, you know, sick night from Embiid where he's, he's battling stomach issues and he's barely contributing, uh, and you should be able to take full advantage of that. I mean, Kawhi Leonard, to me, has been as impressive as anybody in the playoffs, not named Kevin Durant. And so that was just a real clunker for the, from them that I do wonder if they're going to regret a little bit. But to me, you look top to bottom, I, I just think they have fewer questions than the Sixers do. I think the Sixers have shown, you know, a number of different flaws, whether it was in game one, uh, against Brooklyn, uh, where they just, you know, kind of flat, not locked in, a little bit checked out from a guy like Ben Simmons. We've seen Embiid uh, look very dominant at times, but also really look stifled against Marcus Gasol and, and had some issues not only with his, his health and sickness, but also with his knee earlier in the postseason. Uh, and then some of their, you know, complimentary guys, whether it's Reddick or, or Harris, have been kind of hit or miss. So it was a big time performance from Jimmy Butler. Uh, I thought he played, you know, kind of punched above his weight class a little bit in game two. They really needed that because of uh, some of these other factors that I'm describing. But I just think Toronto is the more trustworthy team, the more stable team. Uh, and I expect Nick Nurse to kind of uh, be a little bit more ready for some of the defensive cross matches that uh, Brett Brown, uh, you know, brought out in game two, because it looked like uh, Toronto was just back on their heels a little bit. You know, how 
Philadelphia was defending Siakam, uh, how they were uh, handling Marcus Gasol. It looked like it just tripped them up a little bit, and I think they're going to be better in Game 3. One final question for Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. Uh, if Toronto and Milwaukee advance, so we have a Toronto-Milwaukee Eastern Conference Final, um, I know you did a bunch of work on the Big 3 today. And I believe that you received a phone call in which the other end said, hey, this is Ice Cube, which is really cool, by the way. Um, (laughs) Is there any chance that they would play the big three in the Eastern Conference TV slots instead of Toronto-Milwaukee? Oh, boy. Well, yeah, so just get rid of the two markets that nobody cares about. (laughs) Well, I hope it doesn't come to that. I'll be honest, though. Like, I was actually kind of impressed by the CBS – uh, you know, television production for the big draft that they did. Uh, number one pick, Royce White. You might remember him uh, washing out from the Houston Rockets and, uh, you know, kind of sparking a lot of uh, debate about mental health and, and mental health treatment in the NBA, you know, you know, five or six years ago. Uh, I feel old because they said he was 27 years old, and it's like, man, this guy was uh, you know, a first-round pick not that long ago. Um, but, yes, uh, that is not what Adam Silver uh, has in mind in terms of the, the TV ratings bonanza. And I think, frankly, you know, once we get through, you know, potentially this Houston Golden State series and how long that one lasts, it could get really ugly because I'm not sure uh, what the casual fan is going to think of Golden State versus Portland um, or Golden State versus Denver in the Western Conference Finals. I mean, certainly that does not have the juice uh, of some of the previous Western Conference Finals series that we've seen. And, you know, I saw a bunch of promotional emails talking about the huge ratings for game one of Warriors Rockets and look you better have big ratings for that game you know that's probably going to be one of the most anticipated games of the entire season and uh, you know I I do wonder if uh, you know all these factors you know no LeBron kind of weird matchups where you know the second round was loaded but the conference finals round wasn't as loaded I I do wonder if that's going to wind up having a big hit for the NBA. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. Grab his stuff. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver. You catch him every week on Locked On NBA. Tomorrow, Adam and Anthony will get you what's going on as they get the Friday show for you. Thanks very much for tuning in today. Go grab your local team's Locked On podcast and enjoy more of the Locked On Podcast Network.